Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 109. We'll begin with a brief summation of Jeremiah chapters 8 through 11 and follow with a consideration of Yirmiyahu's unique and poetic voice. If the round of colorful tirades against the temple and the people did not curdle your blood in the last episode, Yirmiyahu has some more for you now. He begins chapter 8 with another evocative moment, where all the bones of the kings, the officers, the high priests, and all the people of Jerusalem will be taken out of their graves, exposed to the elements, the sun, the moon, and the stars, which the people foolishly worshipped, and then, quote, they shall become dung upon the earth, and death shall be preferable to life for all that are left of this wicked folk. Oh, damn! Desecrating the graves of VIPs in this fashion was a common practice for the vengeful Assyrians, in the annals of Ashurbanipal, he describes how after conquering the defiant Elamites, quote, the graves of their kings, first and last, that did not fear Assyria and Ishtar our god, I uprooted and destroyed and exposed them to the sun. I took their bones to Assyria, their restless souls I placed there. I prevented sacrifices for the dead and water libations for them. Oh, damn! And nothing, I mean nothing, seems to work with the Jews. They are dishonest, they're wicked, and they're heading for disaster. Even the simplest animal knows better than the wisest among the people. Quote, they offer healing offhand for the wounds of my poor people, saying, all is well, all is well, when nothing is well. And Yirmiyahu may well be describing the regime currently running the U.S. when he says, quote, They have acted shamefully, they have done abhorrent things, yet they do not feel shame. They cannot be made to blush. Assuredly, they shall fall among the falling. They shall stumble at the time of their doom. And the doom will come. The threat from the north is coming, and it will bring the pain. But Yirmiyahu is not reveling in the ruin of the people. Quote, Oh, that my head were water, my eyes a fount of tears. Then would I weep day and night for the slain of my poor people. But we're back at it in chapter 9 with Yirmiyahu wishing he was elsewhere, away from the adulterers and band of rogues. Quote, Their tongue is a sharpened arrow. They use their mouths to deceive. One speaks to his fellow in friendship, but lays an ambush for him in his heart. Shall I not punish them for such deeds, says the Lord? Shall I not bring retribution on such a nation as this? All because the people forsook God's teachings and went astray, but God will have his vengeance. And quote, Lo, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will take note of everyone circumcised in the foreskin of Egypt, Judah, Edom, the Ammonites, Moab, and all the desert dwellers who have the hair of their temples clipped. For all these nations are uncircumcised, but all the house of Israel are uncircumcised of heart. Chapter 10 has two prophecies, which are different in content but similar in tone in that they both read like prayers. The first begins with a reminder slash warning for the Jews not to fear the signs of heaven before launching into a takedown of idols. The wood covered with silver and gold, fastened with nails so it won't fall over. It stands, quote, like a scarecrow in a cucumber patch. They cannot speak. They have to be carried for they cannot walk. How can the people worship these things, especially when God is God, a living God, an everlasting king? But then, smack in the middle of this tirade is a verse in pure Aramaic. It is the only verse in all of the Torah and prophetic books written exclusively in Aramaic, and in a more archaic one at that. We know this from the use of the word arka for land 
which was commonly used in the book of Ezra or the papyri from Elephantine, which dates from the 5th century BCE, instead of the more modern Ara, which appears, for example, in the book of Daniel, which is believed to be from the 2nd century BCE. We know from 2 Kings chapter 18 that the Jewish elites during the time of Hezekiah spoke Aramaic, so perhaps Yirmiyahu was speaking to the elites in their own language. But other commentators have considered that maybe this line was meant to be sent off in a letter to the Jews of Babylon. Either way, looking at this line, it begs a different question. What is it doing here? The verse is translated as follows, quote, Thus shall you say to them, let the gods who did not make heaven and earth perish from the earth and from under these heavens. If you look at the verse before and after, it's not really clear who the them is. Is Yirmiyahu referring to the Gentiles or their gods? Or perhaps this verse is in the wrong place and should be tucked into the section which talks about the idol makers. But lest we ponder this question for too long, Yirmiyahu soon calls to God to avenge the people of Israel, a line some of us will recognize from the Passover Haggadah. Quote, pour out your wrath on the, on the nations who have not heeded you, upon the clans that have not invoked your name, for they have devoured Jacob, have devoured and consumed him, and have laid desolate his homesteads. Chapter 11 finds Yirmiyahu sent to walk the highways and byways of Judah to remind the people of the covenant their ancestors made with God upon leaving Egypt, which brings to mind the covenantal language of the book of Deuteronomy, the finding of which prompted Yoshiah's religious awakening and reform. And there are indications that Yirmiyahu's talk about this covenant that we're in a period not too far after the wave of purges and reforms, because Yirmiyahu refers to the men of Judah exclusively in verse 10, implying that there may also be men of Israel. And Yirmiyahu has a lot to say about this covenant. He uses the phrase, this covenant, like four times in the first eight verses of the chapter, because noncompliance will bring down a crap ton of wrath on the people, and God will not listen to their crying and they can call out to the gods they've been worshiping but those gods won't do anything about it either and though the people have conspired against Jeremiah, especially the people of his hometown Anatot nothing will come of it because God will protect the prophet so that he can continue to warn and launch tirades and otherwise be a big downer at parties and ruin all the fun because that's what prophets do and that's what they're supposed to do thus endeth the summation and beginneth the consideration In episode 47, I talked to great length about memory, about how we as a people remember, remember, remember. We remember Amalek and the naughty Aramean and the Egyptian enslavement and the liberation and the parting of the Red Sea and the destruction of the temples and the lineup at the kosher Dunkin' Donuts at the end of Yom Kippur. All we do is remember. But the odd thing is that this injunction to remember comes to us in written form. I discussed in episode 47 also about the tension and moral panic that gripped the Hellenic world when Greeks shifted from the spoken to the written word. The Greeks championed speech because the act of transmission, they argued, was a careful and mindful one. The speakers strived to be clear and the listeners strived to take in every syllable. Accuracy was key, as there was no safety net. If a word was unclear, it was lost forever. From that perspective of the High Wire Balancing Act, which is speech. Written accounts are safer in every respect. The writer has multiple shots at meaning. The reader can reread, and worse comes to worse, there is always the text that can be parsed by a brighter mind at some point later on. Yes, there will inevitably be squabbles over interpretation, but that's a small price to pay, isn't it? However, one could say the best practice of all continued well into the 5th century CE, reading out loud. It captured the immediacy of the spoken word, but had all the fail-safes and reliability of the written word. It was a perfect blend. 
But in the ancient Near East, in Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, and Judah, it was all about written language. The earliest script is Sumerian, which dates back to the 33rd century BCE. And then, in close second, in the 26th century BCE, Egyptian hieroglyphs, followed two centuries later by Akkadian. In there are the Semitic languages, including ancient Hebrew, and the list goes on and on. Mycenaean Greek, by the way, pops up sometime in the 15th century BCE. Of all the prophets we've encountered so far and will encounter, and there will be many, Yirmiyahu, I believe, is the most writerly and the most literary, as if transmitting God's words was his day job, and a terrible job at that. Get off the stage and never sing again! You are the worst! What Yirmiyahu really was, was a poet. There are countless examples of staccato exclamations, rapid changes of scene and vantage point, frequent shifts of voice and discourse, use of invocation, plural command and rhetorical question, a propensity for assonance, the repeating of a sound or vowel, and wordplay, a rich array of metaphors and similes from the natural landscape and from human crafts and trades, which I talked about in the previous episode. And there's also precision of metonymy and synecdoche, which is the use of the part to describe the whole. But as poetic as he is about the fate of the people, he also speaks about himself, his own life, and his feelings about what is to come. One of the more poignant comes in chapter 11 when he describes his fate at the hands of his enemies, those in power and those inconvenienced by his prophetic tirades. Quote, the Lord informed me and I knew, then you let me see their deeds, for I was like a docile lamb led to the slaughter. I did not realize that it was against me they fashioned their plots. Let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. O Lord of hosts, O just judge, who tests the thoughts in the mind? Let me see your retribution upon them, for I lay my case before you. Assuredly, thus said the Lord of hosts, concerning the men of Anatot, who seek your life and say, you must not prophesy any more in the name of the Lord, or you will die by our hand. Like Eov, who cries out to God to rail against the evil fate that has befallen him, Yirmiyahu suffers for his activism as well. He pleads, he accuses, he anticipates, he begs for God to smite his enemies. He does what any of us would do in that dire position. So in a sense, his suffering is a synecdoche for the suffering of the people. The man who speaks in parables is himself a parable. He stands at the temple gate and bewails the fate of the people in chapter 7. In chapter 13, he'll wear and destroy a loincloth. He'll refrain from marriage in chapter 16, witness a potter at his wheel in chapter 18, smash a potter's jug in chapter 19, hold forth a wine cup of wrath in chapter 25, and he'll even attach a yoke to his neck with thongs in chapter 27. The list goes on. If he was going through the divine motions, we could say that it was truly a dramatic performance, but Yirmiyahu is not a mime, nor is he a mannequin. His complaint is his alone. His words are his own. And they cut him as deeply as they cut us. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, would it kill you to check out TanakhCast? Or even better, write a brief review at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people who might be interested in some Bible learning find this podcast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. 
Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for episode 110 when we continue the book of Jeremiah with chapters 12 through 15.